Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the New Testament reading of 2 Thessalonians and the Gospel of Luke. As you heard a few moments ago, you may be seated. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, as we come upon these remaining weeks of November in the church year, in two short weeks, it will be the season of Advent, and the focus shifts to the coming of Christ at Christmas. But before we get there, we have these two weeks that follow All Saints Sunday. Next week is the last Sunday of the church year. Sometimes we recognize it as Christ the King Sunday. We think about the victory that Jesus won for us through his death and resurrection. How he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will come again in glory. That is his second coming, if you will. Riding on the clouds to judge the living and the dead. But if you listen to the readings for today, you heard a little bit of that language about his second coming already. His judgment, how we are called to be ready for his return. Now there can be some feelings of fear or uncertainty or worry for Jesus coming back. For when he's going to come back. But for those who believe, there's nothing to fear. That's easy for me to say, because I'm a pastor, and it's what I'm supposed to say to you that you shouldn't have anything to worry about, anything to fear. But that doesn't change the fact that on a day like today, you hear these words Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Nations rising against other nations. Well, that's nothing new in our world. And there are wars all over the earth all the time. Earthquakes. Yeah, but, I mean, we're kind of safe in our part of the world from earthquakes, right? So that's, that's not too scary here in Winnipeg. Famines. Pestilence. Well, certainly famines happen across the world. But again, in, in our part of the world... We don't see that as much. Pestilences. Pestilence. Not a word you hear all that often. As I was typing this into my Word document, I happened to, to right-click on the word pestilence and hover over synonyms, and up pops virus. Pandemic. Well, isn't that something? It's almost as if God knew what started over two years ago was going to happen, as if he is the Almighty and knows all things. 
Just like he knows that there will be persecutions that are going to come where you are delivered into the synagogues and prisons. Again, not something that we necessarily face in our part of the world. However, as I continue to read the Gospel of Luke and Jesus' words, I read this. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And again, some of these things are happening just far away from us. But what if they weren't far away from us? What if it was in our own backyard and we were faced with the reality of our parents and brothers or sisters or relatives or friends turning their backs on us? Delivering us up to the authorities who have the ability to punish us for our beliefs, even put us to death. How would you respond? How would you react to being hated by all because of your belief in Christ? Do you think you would be able to remain secure in your beliefs in the face of hatred, even from your own family? And do you think that you would be able to remain faithful to Christ even if you were going to be put to death for it? Because after all, you will be hated by everyone for his name's sake. Will you also be able to stand firm in your faith for his name's sake? And that's the crux of all of this. What can you do when faced with persecution? Our family is turning against us. Famine, pestilence, viruses, pandemics, darkness, even death. What can you do? The answer is nothing. In fact, what we usually do is we run. We hide, we shrink, we get quiet, we stay silent. Why? Because it's the easy way. When the majority of the world doesn't believe what we believe, and the majority of the world disagrees with the things that we agree on, and when we live our lives surrounded by the majority of those people, it's easy to do nothing. It's easy to say nothing. It's a whole lot easier to be a friend to the world than it is to stand against it. One such topic is the discussion between creation and evolution. And this Thursday, we have Creation Ministries coming to visit us. And so we have this opportunity to see exactly where we stand with the world that believes in evolution or with God's Word that describes how He created all things. It's not so easy to go against the world. 
especially when you see yourself in the minority. It's easy to be friendly with the world. The book of James tells us this. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you want to be a friend to the world, it's like you're committing adultery with God. As the church is the bride of Christ, when we'd rather be married, united, friends with the world, and live like the world, we are cheating on Christ. When we want to have this ongoing relationship with the world that doesn't believe in God, it is considered hatred toward God. When we want to love the world and all that is in it and indulge in its sinfulness, we make ourselves enemies of God. And that's exactly what we are. Enemies of God. In Romans 5, we see that we are weak, that we are ungodly, that we are sinners, and that we are enemies of God. And all of this goes back to the fall of man, the fall of Adam, because sin entered the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. As Paul goes on to say, it is Adam who bears that responsibility, not Eve. Sin doesn't come into the world through Eve. Sin comes into the world through Adam. And with sin comes death. And so the consequences for our sin is death. And it's something that we deserve because we all sin. Yes, it's physical death. We will suffer the consequences of sin on our physical bodies, and they, that may take our life, unless Christ returns first. What we also deserve as a result of the consequences of our sin, our ungodliness, is eternal death. It's hell. It's forever being separated from God and his love and grace and mercy. Because Yes, we are weak. Yes, we are ungodly. Yes, we are sinners. And yes, we are enemies of God because of our sin. But in our weakness, and in our ungodliness, and in our sin, God demonstrates his love for us. He sends Jesus. And while we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. And while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. To reconcile us is to bring us back to himself. And in order to bring us back, in order to buy us back, to purchase and redeem us, Christ had to die. In order to give us life, he had to take our death. And he did it because we couldn't. Because we are weak and ungodly and sinners and enemies of him. And still, 
he did it for us. That's how much he loves us. We, in sin, are his enemies. And it's like he led himself to the front lines of the battle. And he stood before the enemy firing squad and he took every bullet on our behalf. Or as God's word would describe it, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. He just took it. He allowed himself to be sacrificed in order to give us forgiveness, to give us life, to give us salvation. But it doesn't end there. Because he was the perfect lamb, without spot or blemish. He was the final sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins because he was the son of man and the son of God. And his perfect sacrifice paid the price for the whole world, for your sins and for mine. And because his sacrifice was accepted by God, he rose from the dead, proving that he defeated sin, death, and the devil once and for all, opening the door to eternal life for all who believe in him. And so when we hear about Christ's second coming, his returning again, we don't have to fear. In fact, we should be at peace, knowing that he is going to come again to take us to be with him forever. That's easy for me to say, because I'm a pastor. It's what I'm supposed to say to you. But I'm not in your shoes. And the reality is, this message, it's not about me. It's easy to make the message about me and my words to you. As if there was some sort of power that my words have upon each and every one of you, like I can give you peace. Like I can take care of all of your worries and all of your fears just by speaking the words. Like I can give you peace about what is to come in the future. Like I can give you peace about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I mean, as a pastor, you want to think that you actually have some impact in the lives of people. But I'll tell you this. Whether I've said it here Sunday, whether I've said it in Bible study, whether you've never heard me say it, I'll say it and I'll say it again and I'll remind you here now. The things that you hear proclaimed by me, don't take my word for it. Don't take my words as the be-all and end-all of all matters. Make sure the things that you hear from my mouth line up with the word of God. And then I get to a verse like... 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, which says, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. In the last number of months, I've been doing something I've never had to do in 13 and a half years of ministry. And that is preach every week.
And as a pastor, this is probably one of, if not the, most important moments for the church. Yes, ministry the rest of the week is important, but during a worship service, during these 15, 20 minutes that I have with you, where arguably I have your attention the most, or at least should, this is the moment to give you everything I think I need you to hear. And that's where I have to stop. I think I need you to hear. Because this isn't about me. As much as I'm the one standing before all of you, speaking to you right now, it's not about me. And I need that reminder. I need that reminder all the time. I was having coffee with a friend recently. He was drinking coffee. I wasn't. I don't like coffee. But uh, he uh, is studying to become a pastor. And I was telling him about my sermon preparation. And the most important thing that I could tell to him to anyone, I'll tell you now. And that is, I pray. And part of my prayer for every sermon is that God gives me the words to speak to his people. That he would open up my heart and my mind to hear his words. And that these would be his words for his people. Because as a sinner, it's easy to want to make this about me. To want to boast in myself, especially when I have a sermon that I think is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And then I read Paul's words again in 2 Thessalonians. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And I'm reminded his words for his people. I may be called as your pastor, but you are not my people. You are his people. This is not my church. This is Christ's church. And I am no different than the rest of you. I am a poor, miserable sinner. Except I have the privilege and honor and responsibility and opportunity to stand before you today in the hopes that the word of God will reach your ears and your mind and your heart today. And that it will have an impact in your life now and as you leave this place. But not my words. His words. Because I do not direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. He does. The other part of my prayer for every sermon is that the Holy Spirit works in my life and yours to create faith where there is none, to strengthen faith where it is weak, and to keep it strong all the days of your lives. Again, easy to get caught up in my words having incredible power and impact. But my words have no power and no impact. God's word has all the power 
And as a servant of Christ, these are to be his words. In order for them to have any impact on you, they have to be his words. And they also have an impact in my life as well. In order for them to have an impact in my life, they have to be his words. Because as much as you're the ones hearing these words, I need to hear them too. I need the word of God just as much as you do. Christ is the king. I am not. And it is his words, his life, his death, his resurrection from the dead, his sacraments, his baptism, his supper at the altar. It is these things that do incredible, life-changing, life-saving things. I am just an empty vessel that is filled by him. And you are too. Because he has done great things in your life. And he will continue to do great things in your life, working in you to remain faithful, to stand firm in the faith. Because your faith stands not in you, in me, or in anyone else. But it stands in Christ and in him alone. And to him be all honor and glory and praise and adoration and thanksgiving. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.